Welcome, everybody, to the Examine Life podcast, where we take life's thorniest con- questions and deconstruct them and explore them with a rad friend. Today's guest is a venture capitalist, a professor, a father, and a husband, Sean Johnson. How are you? Doing well. It's good to see you. And today's question, which we'll get to in, you know, 10, 15 minutes, is is college worth it, right? Coming from two fathers who have a lot of touch points in the educational system, we are going to uh, explore the question. So how are you, Sean? I'm doing well, man. I'm excited to do this. This is, uh, you know, when you mentioned the topic, it, it, uh, it, it's something that my wife and I talk a lot about. It, it comes up often in my friend circles and it's a thorn. It's thorny <laughs> in this kind of this time of upheaval. You know, it's an interesting. It's super interesting, especially for us who have spent a lot of time on the internet. There's an over-indexing on college is stupid, like in yes. our internet circles. Which 100. We'll, we'll see where we shake out on that. But before we get started, uh, just tell us a little bit. You mentioned you like to cook, and so you, you're hosting a dinner party at your house with maybe some friends of friends who haven't met you before. Yeah. And they're like, hey, Sean, how do you spend your time? Um, yeah. How do you answer that question? So, yeah, for a long time, I would have answered that kind of the way that you introduced me. So for, for 12 years, I was founding partner at Manifold. Manifold is a venture holding company in Chicago. We created an, an advisory practice that was doing innovation consulting uh, for enterprise mm-hmm. customers. It started off as a product development shop and then kind of moved upstream. And then an early stage venture fund and uh, did 20, geez, I don't know, 25, 30 investments. Last year, late last year, I told my partners I wanted to step away from the business and explore what's next. Spent 12 years together. Love my partners. I'm super proud of what we built. And, and you were, you are or were in a te- uh, professor? For nine years. I'm So technically I'm still, on, like they, they have me there. It's on, my course is on hiatus. We're evaluating some. I taught digital marketing for entrepreneurs. It was part of the Entrepreneurship and Innovation Initiative, um, which the initiative is no longer there. They realize there's a gap. Like my course filled a gap that they don't have in other places. But they're trying to. I wasn't tenure track, and I think they're trying to. I think they're trying to balance like tenure track versus versus clinical versus adjunct versus like how what's that right combination need to be. And so we've had conversations about doing a second course around B2B. We've had conversations about a course around professional services marketing specifically since I, you know, I did that. So yeah, so I'm I'm in a you're catching me in a phase of of upheaval, I guess is how I would say it. And uh yeah, trying to figure out what that next what that next 10 years looks like. Yeah. And that that course was at what university? Northwestern I, at Northwestern. Kellogg. At yeah. Kellogg. Very yep. cool. Yes, well, from one fellow, uh, not sure where I'm going next, to another, <laughs> not sure where I'm going next. Sure. Um, how old are your kids? 13 and 10. 13 and and uh, 10. It's, been, it's been good in that sense. My wife is a, is a chief revenue officer at an investment bank that got bought by private equity and has some really aggressive growth goals that she's on the hook for. And so um, the timing has been good in terms of being able to double down on kiddo stuff, house stuff, kind of support her and show up for her. She started a nonprofit too for executive women with kids. And so I'm helping her a lot in terms of the operations kind of behind the scenes on that. And so um, the the balance of like, I wouldn't say we prioritized my career, but mm-hmm. my career was definitely more volatile than hers mm-hmm. was. And, and we made decisions around that. She's just crushing it. But, you know, it's, it's an, an intense, intense growth trajectory for her. And so mm-hmm. being able to kind of support her in this season has been good as I kind of figure out what I want to be when I grow up. That makes sense. Yes. Oh, that makes two of us. Did, did you think, so, you know, your kids are 13 and you did 12 years in venture capital. Mm-hmm. When you reflect back on kind of the trade-offs that you made between work, family, and probably other dimensions of your life, what does that reflection hold for you? I think for the most part, I did it well. Um, when we started the company, it was at a steakhouse <laughs> with my two partners. And I told them that if we build a successful company, but I don't know my kids, I failed. And I'd already done the startup thing a couple of times. And I knew I knew what that was like. And I think candidly, that was partly why I was excited about doing an advisory practice in the beginning was I knew that as long as we could scope projects well and manage accounts well and you know do some of those kinds of things, it wasn't the same trajectory as a startup would be, but it would be more sustainable for that life. 
And we started off, it was like we were working with startups. We were basically like their product dev team. And then, like I said, we moved upstream as these enterprise organizations started standing up innovation groups and they needed similar kinds of resources. So it all happened kind of by degrees. And then my partner had the idea to start the venture fund. And there's a lot that's super fun about it and super, like super intellectually curious, interesting, you know, getting to listen to all those deals. And as you do more of it, you get better pattern recognition. And I had some unique things I could bring to the table from an operation standpoint, like from both doing diligence, like knowing the levers they could pull from a product or from a marketing perspective, mm-hmm. but then also ways to be helpful kind of post deal and things like that. So yeah, there was a lot that I liked about it. And I do think it, we were able to do it to a large degree where there was a sense of balance where it wasn't at the expense of my family um, or my health or some of those other things. It was more, more around, and I think part of it could be how I'm wired. I'd be at dinner and I'd be physically present, but I would be Mm. elsewhere in my head and I would be processing those problems. And like, it's a lot. It's a lot to grow your own advisory practice and the projects that you're dealing with there and making sure that you make payroll and making sure that you do all those kinds of things. And then also helping your fund companies be successful. And it's especially like early stage, it's very binary risk. Half of them are on fire at any given time. And so like, it's just a lot emotionally to, to yeah. internalize. And I think for a long time, I was, it's funny, I, we, we, I, we did couples therapy about 10 years in, not not because there were like acute major issues, but it's just, you know, like a mentor of mine told me like stuff comes up and it's a good yeah. practice. I and call the it thing the I learned, Yeah, and the thing I learned during that was that I was, I was a robot. Mm. And I think in hindsight, I think I buried a lot of that stuff. And I think in a way, practices around trying to dig that stuff up and be more human i don't know like a dam like the way i described it to my team last year was like a dam bro and it was mm-hmm. just sort of i now I, then i have the reverse problem and so <laughs> so it's been good to be able to heal i guess from yeah. that and to like learn practices to handle it and things like that but yeah like i don't have a tremendous number of regrets you know i loved the organization we built i'm really proud of it um i think we hired really smart people obviously there's tons and tons of things done differently mistakes made and things like that if i were to do it again to make it faster or whatever but was really proud of what we built and and my partners other than my wife and my kids um you know and my parents those are two of the most important relationships in my life and and even though it's going to look different you know kind of going forward i think we'll still be close and i'm i'm hoping that they accomplish all the things that they wanted to accomplish you know so yeah beautiful we're rooting for you in this chapter like i said you've got a you've got a kindred spirit yeah in 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 this path so uh so let's jump into let's jump into today's question let's do it is college worth it and before i kick it off to you i want to start with a a little anecdote okay it kind of blew my mind so the rate of college inflation has has been quite high if a kid is born today and if you assume kind of market rates s&p 500 rates of you know six 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 to eight five to eight percent Yep. And college inflation rates probably like higher on the higher end, six to eight percent. Yeah. If you want to pay for full freight for college for a kid born today, yep. it will be five hundred thousand dollars for four years. Yeah. That's that's the cost. And if you're gonna use those assumptions, it's a thousand dollars a month private US, a thousand dollars a month from the minute they're born for 18 years per kid. Wow. So that just puts into context. And again, we're talking private. We're talking no U.S. Sure. We're talking no no scholarships. Yeah. But um, it's a lot of fucking money. Half a, half a million dollars. It's just, I, I find that a, a useful frame to do, yeah. to, to think about. So yeah. tell me about you went to college, your wife. Ricky, yes. Yeah, so like so many, so many thoughts. So for a long time where my mind first went was no. And I think that came honestly from me and my own identity. So I had an undergraduate degree at University of Colorado. And I think about my experience there. I was a weird person. I still am. I would, <laughs> I would skip my, my classes routinely to go to Barnes and Noble and read books. So like I would, I would, I had this theory that like the textbooks wouldn't be that valuable, but like reading a Seth Godin or a Tom Peters book or whatever it was would be. And so I'd go and read books. I'd go and take a bus from Boulder to Denver, Colorado to go to like a Chamber of Commerce networking event. And I'd be wearing like a silk tie or whatever. I don't know. Like, and just like, I don't even know what I was doing, but I just was like practicing being an adult, I guess. I don't know. But 
my narrative, I think for a long time, like prior to kids, I think my narrative was like, I didn't have a graduate degree. I don't know how much utility I got out of my undergraduate degree. And I was managed to build my network and I managed to carve out kind of the life and the, the profession that I had managed to carve out largely like independent of it, I think. Mm. I think that changed for me when I had kids because I learned that, and it sounds super obvious and stupid in hindsight, but I learned that your kids are not you. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it is a dangerous game to play around, like to take your life and your pattern and to project that onto your kids in a whole bunch mm. of other ways because it's highly unlikely that they are going to do the same things I did in high school, do the same things I did in junior high, do the same things I did okay. in college. I have certain gifts and I have certain skills that may not translate to them. You know, I'm relatively shameless about picking up a phone and or sending an email and just sort of seeing what comes of it because the worst case scenario is that they didn't know me before and now they don't know me. You know, my first mm. job in when I was 16 was telemarketing, selling American Express cards over the phone. And I had a painting business in college and I spent every weekend taking the bus down from Boulder to Colorado Springs to go door to door and knock on doors and try to sell painting, you know? And so mm -hmm. I was a weird person and mm. I still am a weird person. And so some of those idi idiosyncrasies, I think, have been very helpful professionally. That's a lot to project on them and to take that like blanket statement of like, well, I didn't need it, therefore they don't need it. And I also think too, like in hindsight, like maybe I did need it, you know? Mm. Like there was a book I read a few years ago, because this is a topic I've been super interested in. I think it was called The Case Against Education. And, the, and this person was arguing that a degree isn't, isn't, isn't worth it. But it was weird because that's what they were saying, but I didn't, I don't really, I, their premises, I feel like were arguing that it was worth it because they were saying basically like, there was this idea of, and I'm not going to get it right, but it was like signaling theory versus capital theory. So like the value that you get from the degree is mostly from the signal that the degree provides yep. versus any skills that you attribute. And, and they had this concept of the majority of the value creation that happens is from getting the certificate. And so if you did 90% of the work but didn't get mm -hmm. the degree, you'd get very little of the upside, yeah. which to me sounds like you did, that did, that is helpful. And so uh, like, yeah. Oh, they you know, were, I, that was an argument, that was their argument against it. I think they were making, yeah. it, it, like, it was, it was super strange to me. And I think in hindsight, it's like, I didn't think I needed it or I didn't think yeah. it was helpful, but I'd be willing to bet that there were many doors that I, in spite of the fact that like, yes, I sent the cold emails and I went and pursued mm -hmm. the mentorship and I meant, and I, I was aggressive about building a network. I'd be willing to bet that at least those first doors that opened, that was a, consideration like yeah oh he has a degree even though it's an undergrad degree from the university of colorado mm -hmm. like of course i'm not going to have an mba yet or anything like that nah. so i don't know i've like evolved and as i as i think about my kids and their mm. education and what will help them thrive i go around in circles around it man yeah like, especially now it's a weird time yeah. it's a yeah. super weird time like questions like what jobs will ai replace and Oof. how does that impact things so it's like because it's not just like there have been studies around like the um, economic upside of getting a degree. Yeah. And they've said that it's certain, it's certain professions. It's like a STEM, <laughs> if, you, if you pursue a STEM degree, a business degree, a health degree versus like a lot of the liberal arts stuff, most of that value capture is those, the STEM businessy type yeah. things. And so the degree matters. And mm. if you think that AI is going to create this massive upheaval and that a lot of the upheaval is going to happen in STEM and business and healthcare, like in those kinds of professions, like, What's the 15 year impact of that? And does that change? Yeah. Oh, man. So I want I want to come back to A. We're going to pin AI because yeah. okay. we'll have All a right. whole conversation on that. Okay. The thing about the signaling thing, it, you know, I think that first, like, and not all of our listeners, I'd say maybe half of our listeners live in kind of Twitter bubbles where there's yes. a lot of entrepreneurs, there's yes. a lot of self employed people, there's a very yes. international crowd. Yes. And I think there is a bit of a self-selection bias that's like, if you found a way to build a network on Twitter, you're probably pretty resourceful person. And then you probably might not have, have needed college. So I think that, right. I think that's an important disclaimer is like for every person that's preaching, don't go to college on Twitter because yeah. they have, you know, 50,000 followers. It's, it's like, you might be an outlier just in, as a person. Yeah. Uh, so that, that would be one thing. But I also, I think about that for most entry-level jobs, 
that involves some kind of knowledge work. Mm-hmm. A college degree is feels like, and I've never been a recruiter, but it feels like the simplest triaging mechanism to make a probabilistic bet that like this person is worth talking to. Yes. Right? Yes. Do, do you agree with that? I do. You know, so, but even this, even this is sort of complicated. So yeah. I think about Manifold. Okay. The people who I hired were marketers and like product designers. Yep. And then, you know, one of my partners would hire the engineers. Engineers, all he wanted to do was look at the code. Designers, all I wanted to do was look at their portfolio. And I didn't, mm-hmm. I literally didn't look at a resume. I did not care. Like, I want to see your portfolio. I want to see the quality of your work. So there were roles like that mm-hmm. where when your work is visible and clear, I think it's super, it, it, it matters God, way less. Yeah. It's like if you're in HR or in mar- like marketing, I think, in an ideal world, and one of the things I told my students at Kellogg was like, all the stuff we're talking about from a digital marketing perspective, except for maybe paid ads, you can do for your personal brand. In an ideal world, I think I would use, hey, you're amazing at digital marketing because I see your personal brand and that would be my proxy versus education as well. In most cases, many, many people that do marketing as a job um, don't have, have a very, very limited like social footprint. Yeah. So I had to learn, I had to learn to overcome that that bias in my head. And it didn't mean that they were gonna be bad at the job. And so, but that means like, what do you fall back on? And especially like early stage, like when you're raw material, you're 23 and you're raw material and you haven't done anything yet. <laughs> yeah, like it's super easy because I'm gonna get 600 applicants that all look exactly the same because they all took for the most part the same courses and they use the same keywords because they read the same article about how to optimize their resume for the title or whatever it is. And mm. so it's like, yeah, you have to look for some shorthand. As a hiring manager who has, especially like in a smaller organization who has a business to run, you know, like yeah. you do hunt for signal. Um, yeah. It's why so many people get jobs through referral because it's like, oh, yeah. I'm offloading the thinking to this friend of mine who I trust. And if they recommend somebody, I, I trust them by extension. It's like, yeah, you you end up having to resort to shorthand. And it's a it's a big one. I mean, it's like, yeah. like you, I know you went to Yale, like that means something. Like, <laughs> you know? Yeah, and that that is, the signal is, it's nuts. And, and so I, I would say a few things. I'm glad that you brought out, like, because I do think that there are these types of careers where it, it like a designer, like yeah. designing code that's like coding tests and so on. Yeah. Where, if anything, you could probably be self-taught so much better in in, in many of these things. Our, than our best engineer to, was a actually no. Our best best engineer was a computer science major. But all like the two others, like my my co-founder um, was a history major, and he is our CTO. Our other best engineer was a philosophy major. So yeah, like hundred um, yeah. percent. And liberal arts, like there's an argument in liberal arts that it does mm-hmm. apply really well actually to programming. Yeah. Just because of the way it forces your mind to to think. So, but anyway, sorry, I, I cut you. Yeah, no. So that's an interesting one. I'm thinking about obviously BlackRock and financial services. I'm sure there were, but I bet that there were very few people, at, definitely on the kind of front office investment decision making side, that didn't have college degrees. Yeah, I think it was it, it's. Uh, an industry like a traditional industry like finance is so entrenched in its ways of thinking yep. that I, I could see the only way that you would have someone who wasn't, it was like maybe they were a professional poker player yeah. in high school or yeah. like a teal fellow or yeah. like so, something like that. And if so you right were to there, express yeah. that idea, like wh- what's the most generous version of why you think they do that? Well, I think there's there's the heuristic, right? And I think in, in investment banks, any like, very competitive job. Yeah. If if a person got into Yale, then they probably did really well on their SATs. Mm-hmm. And they probably know how to, you know, they probably had a diverse portfolio of extra, you know, like you can kind of like run the clock back. Right. And then say it's like, oh, you know, I don't even think I'd get into Yale, right? It's a 5% acceptance rate these days. Wow. So you run the clock back and and you can almost say like these you could take the obscene New York City. I mean, you, you live in a in a, a high-end suburb in, in Chicago. You could t- take the obscene argument that's like, their parents have put this kid on the track since they were in kindergarten. Yes, 100%. Like, tutors. I know kids yep. here in Manhattan Beach that are being taught, kids, kindergartners being taught Mandarin. They're not wow. Chinese. Wow. So someone is planting a seed. So if you're at the other end of that pipeline, 
Yep. And you at a high performing firm, which is, you know, talent is for knowledge of companies particular is the ultimate barometer. If I could make a bet on this signal that there's a chance that they learn Mandarin in kindergarten, yeah. you're going to buy that signal every yeah. single day. And in yeah. fact, that's probably why they bid up elite schools so much. So I think that, that, that that's kind of how I would see it in those careers. And do you feel like it's valid? Like in the sense of, I mean, I obviously, you know, it's been a while since you've been yeah. in university, at university, but thinking back to your college experience at Yale, at an elite university, yeah. do you remember being in class with your peers and being like, these are really impressive people. I bet these people are more, are legit, smarter, harder workers, whatever it is, than hmm. the folks at Rutgers or whatever. Yeah. How do you think about that? I... Because I have a I have an interesting angle to it in that being a child of immigrants, yeah, I wasn't groomed to go to Yale. Mm. In fact, funny story about college for me, they, we didn't have the valedictorians, but I was the, I had the best grades, like basically like throughout high school. Yeah, I show up to my guidance counselor's office. I guess it's like junior year, first semester, mm -hmm. and she asked. I remember Miss Newenhouse. She asks, "Hey, Kay, where do you want to go to college?" and You'll never, my answer is crack me up to this day. Arizona State University, ASU, and McGill in, in Montreal. Yeah. And that, that's what I said to her. I was like, ASU and McGill. And she yeah. said, that's kind of random. Yeah. Why? And I said, I don't think, maybe I didn't say it out loud, but in my head is like, because I had sweatshirts from both of those colleges. <laughs> that's how little we yeah. talked about college in my house. I mean, I was, 15 years old and the college I wanted to go to as a straight A student were yeah. the ones I had sweatshirts to. That's so funny. So, so my counselor turns to me and she, she, she looks at my PSAT scores and she's, you, you, you know, you could probably go to an Ivy League school based on what I'm looking at. And literally that thought that Kay, he could go to an Ivy League school had never registered within our four walls uh, uh, the walls of our family. So I go back to my dad and I said, dad, she thinks I could go to the Ivy League. And this is classic my dad. He goes, oh no, we're not smart enough for that. Wow. Literally. Because again, it's just so outside of the cultural conditioning that yeah. it was almost like a, like the white picket fence is like, oh, like that's only for like really white waspy, you know, rich people. And we're just these like middle-class immigrants just yeah. we're middle-class immigrants yeah. so that was the he quickly turned around and he's like okay you're going to Yale." <laughs> uh what so that was that was one thing and so your question was oh about the peers so i was yeah a, like the employers are using student. this as a signaling mechanism to for some underlying competencies yep. do you feel like that was accurate yeah so i i get to yell i'm a top student i was the yeah. you know valedictorian equivalent mm -hmm. and I was, I felt like an idiot. Okay. Like, oh, people, because, and it wasn't, in hindsight, it wasn't just academics. Like, cause there you, you had the kid that was like taking Mandarin in kindergarten. Sure. Yeah. And you know, they, the, you know, the, the athletes, the, that were also incredible students. Mm. So all of that. So that was one thing. I felt like an idiot. I mean, every single person there was a valedictorian at their school. Wow. wow. So that. So I, I went from being like always the golden child to being really, like I was average. To, it, so that was, that was one thing. But this is what I realized much more in hindsight was they also, there was this kind of social, cultural conditioning that all these kids had experienced. Like they knew they owned blazers. Like the men owned blazers. I didn't own a blazer, yeah. right? Their parents talked to them about stocks. My dad, my dad does still probably couldn't really explain how a stock works to me. And so I think that those things, and I don't know, I, I don't know enough to compare, you know, Yale to, you know, school number a hundred ranked sure. hundred yep. to know that, but I suspect that there's definitely the caliber is much dif more diffuse, yeah. at, you know, the hundredth best school in yeah. the country. And to me, this is like, this is an interesting part of the question where if you just look at the financial, like I think that there's some kind of like top 10, top five, top 20, top 50. I don't know where that marker is, but yeah. 
I think that it's a no-brainer at that level because the RO, again, because presuming you don't want to go become a monk, it's like it, it's the maximizing optionality decision yeah. to make. Yeah. That's where, I mean, we, when, we, when we talk about it, we budget for it, and we're fortunate, obviously, to be able to be in a position to even do that, but we budget for it, assuming, and, and we'll, we'll, within reason, seek out opportunities to kind of help them because when we try to play it out, like I had, a, I had kind of a, a phase of where I was a little bit disenfranchised with the idea because I was like, again, we, we live in this bubble kind of in the North Shore mm -hmm. of Chicago, and, and, and that chip on my shoulder was there, and it was like, First of all, what are we even optimizing for here? Like, huh. we're gonna we're gonna put this kid through all this pressure so that they get good grade, good enough grades, and have a well-rounded profile so that they get into such and such college, <laughs> so that they so that what so that they can go get a job at Goldman, so that what, dot dot dot. And I think it it, it there was a period where I was like, it's like optimizing for their their future wealth. I think like mm -hmm. their future earnings as a proxy for happiness. Yeah, and so I had an aversion to that. I've softened on that and it's more for me as of today. And I, you know, again, who knows, it'll evolve. It'll continue to evolve. My wife has pointed out that like, like you said, not only do top tier consulting firms, top tier accounting firms, top tier law firms, not only do they want you to have a degree, they specifically go to do campus visits at a specific tier of college. And so I don't know who my kids are going to be. They mm -hmm. might want to become a veterinarian or a stand-up comedian or whatever it is. But if you go to Yale and decide you want to become a stand-up comedian, you can do that. If you go to the University of Colorado and decide you want to go work at Goldman Sachs, you probably won't. And so mm -hmm. it's kind of this like optimization yeah. around, like you said, maximizing their optionality. And so that's sort of where I'm at right now. But there's still a ton of questions and, it, mm -hmm. and, and we're, we're, we're having active conversations because, you know, my son's entering eighth grade. We didn't do the thing where like they went to like a private kindergarten that we had to interview for and mm -hmm. they didn't do, they haven't had tutors and they haven't done, you know, some of those things. But we have over the years made some deliberate, like when COVID hit, we made the decision to homeschool our kids for a year, like homeschool, homeschool. And we saw that experience and it was pretty intense for us professionally. But um, if all you care about is like their academics and how quickly they learn, it's a no-brainer because it's like yeah. the curriculums are so good and it's the parent-teacher ratio is like two parents, two kids. <laughs> you know, like it's just, yeah. it's a no-brainer. Like they got through, they each got through like a year and a half, two years worth of math. They got to do logic. They got to do a whole bunch of cool stuff. But then we made the decision, the conscious decision to put them back and to put them back into, into public school. You know, and I got to know some people that did homeschooling and they thought I was weird, you know, like, why are you doing that? Like, you've seen it, you've seen the light, like, why are you going back mm -hmm. to the dark side? And as we project out into the future and we, we've seen, you know, we have friends whose kids are in high school and stuff like that. And like you said, like hiring a coach to help them write, to help them write the essay. <laughs> and like, there's a, it seems like it's kind of a gray line of like what, help, what, what amount of help yeah. it is. The coaching around how to take the test and like how many impediments do you clear away for your kid in service of getting them into like an a, a particular school of a particular level yeah. of repute at the potential expense of like they don't learn on grit or resilience or whatever it is so that's our conversation but then yeah. but then you know again my wife is in in that world is in investment banking and she has also said that the young associates that come out are like so much smarter than she was when she was starting her career. And it's like kind of mind blowing. And like, there are things that they don't know how to do or they have gaps. Like they maybe aren't as resilient when they get stuck. Like they're quicker to go ask for help. They need more validation. Like there's some themes that she's sort of patterns that maybe she's observed a little bit, but like from an intelligence perspective and an ability to do the job, she's like, no, like they, they run circles around me. Yeah. Um, that, that, that version of me. Yeah. And so then it's like, how important is grit? <laughs> yeah. Know. Oh, man. One thing, it would be an interesting thought experiment because you and I are both entering from a place of, you know, financial luxury where, I mean, it's a huge cost, but yeah. we're prepared and able to make yes. it. Yes. And, and a lot of people listening to this might not have that so emphatically or might not have it at all. Yeah. And so that, so we're debating this through the question of like, the only cost is the opportunity cost. Yes. 
And so I wonder, and I know it's harder for, you know, when you have the means to do something, it's always harder to understand the perspective of someone who doesn't. But I wonder, it's like, what if, and I, I'm very specific to not pick any names because I don't want to shit on any school. Uh, yeah. But like, let's say like you take school number 50, the 50th yep. best school in the country. Yep. We'll just call it, you know, school number 50. Yep. And that person has to go into $250,000 worth of debt to go to school number 50. And so we kind of, again, you can get into Goldman, to McKinsey, to Google, and so on at school number 50, but it's it's definitely not nearly the shoe-in that it is at school five. Yeah. And so then, you know, you might have, you know, it's this weird, I, I wonder how you could think of it as a graph, but you you have more optionality than someone without a degree. Yes. But you don't have the optionality that you and I have really been talking about, which is kind of elite school, you know, big elite yeah. energy. Yes. And so you're kind of middle of the pack energy with $250,000 of debt. Yes. And not getting that, you know, hundred, I don't even know what, you know, those jobs pay, but like a close to probably close to $100,000 a year job. You're kind of going a more traditional educated path. Mm-hmm. Do you, I know, what do you think of that? Well, it's trend? like a big, it's like a big multivariate thing, right? Because then yeah. it's also like what profession do yeah. you go down? Like if I if I'm getting into two hundred fifty thousand dollars of debt to get a early childhood education degree, that's going to be really hard, and it's going to yeah. take me a long time, practically speaking, to pay that off. There's the question around undergrad versus grads. I did well on my tests and stuff like that. I got into Princeton. My Stepdad was like, I, if I were you, I would go to state college for undergrad and then, because you're going to go get an MBA probably. And then once you get the MBA, nobody cares about where you went to undergrad. And that was, so that was the lens I mm-hmm. used as an 18 year old. That was the advice that I had. And it was yeah. like, let's save, save the money on undergrad and then optimize for the MBA. Turned out I didn't end up getting the MBA because I got like needle in a haystack, got to teach. Yep. And then they just didn't like, I was like, I don't need the signaling credential anymore yeah. and I get the network and I get all those kinds of things. And so, so that's a, ver- that's a variable. It's like, do you, yeah. do you does, does the path that you want to go down realistically require a graduate degree? And then how likely are you, but then how likely are you at 18 to know what your path is? Yeah, I be? know that. Yep. Yeah. My wife was a transfer pricing economist and then a chief revenue officer. Neither <laughs> job existed when she graduated high school, <laughs> you know? Transfer pricing economist. Oh, that makes for some great, uh, Great dinner it's conversation. Than you think. I I, <laughs> I I had a goal when we were young. I had a goal to become a creative director because I thought that would be a super fascinating job title mm. to tell people at parties. And yeah. I became a creative director. No one cared. And yeah. then she'd say she's an economist. And then like the next 45 minutes of conversation yeah. would just be people asking her questions about, you know. Yeah, um, oh, that's so, fascinating. Yeah. yeah, no, she's I, smart lady. Yeah, lucky band. Um, yeah. And so... Well, there's one elephant in the room that we haven't talked about. College is fucking fun for most people. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and if, you're, if you're not the one going to Barnes and Noble to, to read. Yeah, yeah. 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 You know, I think that, again, it's fun at what cost. Mm. Right. But college was the land of many firsts for me and first of the fun kind. And yeah. so it's like, you know, most of my good friends are friends from college but I think that there's something, to me, it's a little bit like the homeschooling thing where, yes, you could optim. I could see a path where you do like a mix. Let's say you're just like, I want to do college at a quarter of the price. Yeah. Where you do like a mix of like Coursera, apprenticeships, yeah. some yeah. tutoring. Maybe yeah. you join like some like club sports in yeah. your town and you volunteer and yeah. you could kind of like, DIY college at probably a quarter of the cost. 100%. And probably quality-wise, the same education. Let's I remember signaling. having conversations with like investors around like, would you take the 250K and like create like a like an angel fund mm-hmm. to like fund your kid, your kid's business aspirations, you know? Yeah. Like 100%. Yeah. 100%. So you could DIY that. Again, I it's it's good to have your contradicting or opposing perspective in that like. I, I had so much fun in college. We drank a ton. We yeah. traveled. We fucked around. We just yeah. did stupid shit. And again, like there's a cost to everything, but like I would go back and, you know, I would have incurred debt to like <laughs> experience that. Again, knowing 
that I would come out of it on the other side. But I wonder, though, for someone who is looking at, you know, quarter of a million of debt, what's missing in that DIY path, in your opinion? Yeah. Well, and, and I think to your point, it's not just having freedom, right? Because I think you could do that. You could have, quote unquote, freedom in that uh, DIY path as well. I think you miss out on like the built-in kind of like social graph. So like oh. a lot of that fun wasn't, wasn't just that you had freedom, but it was that you were at a campus with several thousand other people that were exactly the same age hmm. that for better or worse are probably somewhat homogenous from like an IQ perspective or just from like a proclivity perspective or whatever yeah. it is. That probably creates an environment where you're able to take more advantage of that kind of stuff versus like, you know, for example, so like I went down the entrepreneurial path after college instead of going and working at Procter & Gamble or whatever it was. And um, I had a business for about a year and a half. I shut it down. I was a waiter at a seafood restaurant 18 months after college. Mm. When I met my wife, my wife, actually, I was a waiter at a seafood restaurant in Seattle. And I would hang out with those, those people and they were fun people. And we'd go out for drinks afterwards or whatever it was. For somebody who was, and this is broad strokes, and it's like obviously a huge generalization, but at least for me and how I was wired and for that group of people that were at that particular seafood restaurant and how they were wired, I had a level of ambition and intellectual interest and curiosity that I did not feel at the time they shared. And so mm -hmm. while it was fun to go to the bar after after work and like have drinks or whatever, I came home feeling kind of sad because I mm. wasn't around. I found college, even though University of Colorado was not Yale, I, I felt like there was an intellectual stimulation and a, yeah. like staying up until one in the morning in a dorm room, like talking about philosophy or whatever it was. Like it was just different. And so I got real lucky and, you know, I met my wife in Las Vegas and she lived in Manhattan and I didn't, I have a whole lot holding me down. So I was like, yeah, I'll go to Manhattan. And like, I felt the energy again there. Mm -hmm of a bunch of young people trying to like, quote unquote, make it, it was like night and day. So can you seek that out? And can you find that without having the structure of a college degree or a college environment? I'm sure you can. Absolutely. But again, but, it's hard. Yeah. It's harder. And it's again, it's, it's like you're projecting it onto your kids. It's like, yeah. could I, is my kid going to want to yeah. create a DIY thing for all of those mm -hmm. various aspects of their lives? Are they capable of even if they wanted to? And yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it's funny because I, 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 this is where the internet part comes in to me is that I would say I, I'm a, I don't like the word networking, but I'm an avid relationship builder, authentic yes. relationship builder. Yes. And I have met hundreds of people on the internet who yeah. have turned into, into for like real in-person friends to, to the extent that I don't even have a delineation of like, oh, you're my internet friend and you're my friend. It's just, you know, you're yeah. my friend. Yeah. You, I just happened to have me, met you on the internet. It's actually, you know, a point of not contention, but uh, with, with my with my wife, Lisa, and she's just like, you just are always meeting and talking. There's all these people. Plus, we always live in big cities. So yeah. you meet someone anywhere, there's chances are they're coming to New York or LA. It's, you know, yeah. pre pretty likely. So they always yeah. pop in, surf, grab coffee, go for a walk. And I'm like, yeah, it's like, babe, like, you know, a big part of my intellectual fulfillment or my professional network yeah. comes from being super active and proactive online. Yeah. And she's like, wow, that's really, I feel you're very lucky to have that. You know, I don't have that. A lot of people probably don't have that. Yeah. And I said to her, I was like, I could show you how I do it. And then, you know, we go into these like elaborate systems, reminders, or just, uh, yeah. just the vault. I think just the volume of, of communication, of texting yeah. people. Yeah. Um, remembering people's birthdays and she yeah. kind of, she's like, she turns to me and she's, she's like, that's, it's not for me. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's like kind of, kind of once you see under the hood, right. it's like, yes, you can use the internet to build a great network. But yes. once you like look at what that entails, yes, you're like, I'd rather just be in the same dorm yes. as, you know, 80% of those people. So again, it's kind of like yeah. picking I just those. Did I, I did a, as one of my, like, well, I'm trying to figure out what to do with my life. I did a group group coaching thing around like how to build a life. It's a lot of the content I create. I think it's how we first kind of found each other. And there were 30 or so people and they're all like 35 to 50, I'd say. And they're pretty achievement oriented kind of people. But I showed them the mechanics of just how I organize my life. And they were like, you're super OCD. This is a little bit insane. And, you know, it's compelling, but these are very high achieving people. And it's like hard to, it's hard to implement mm -hmm. all of that stuff. And you have to be wired a certain way. And so, 
again, it's like, is college a forced networking mechanism and a signaling mechanism and a way to get a foot in the door at a potential job? And that's all. Maybe. Is that a bad thing? For, yeah. for most people. Yeah. Maybe not. Like if you can afford it and if you can make the economics work, like maybe that's kind of like when they talk about like having a house is like a forced savings account. Yeah. It's like, yeah, like the economics make more sense depending on how well you, how long you plan on living in the house and all the different like multivariate things there, like renting versus buying. Like maybe it makes more sense for, for a lot of people to rent. But yeah. like at the same time, it's like if you're crappy at saving, is it the worst thing in the world that you before savings yeah. account? <laughs> like yeah. maybe like it's, it's a great, it's a great analogy. Someone said, someone said to me, it's like the, the best thing about buying a house was that it forced me to accept that this was my community for a long period of time mm. where it, it basically imposed, it removed transience as a variable and, yeah. and he didn't even realize it, but transience was actually like a low grade anxiety for him. Yeah. And so you just remove that. Yeah. When the whole universe is open to you, it can be paralyzing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh man, that's fascinating. The other thing I think about, and this is maybe on on kind of more of uh, not like the elite track, but it's the track to the Goldman's, to the consulting firms, and then so on. And yeah. you know, you're a p- partner at a venture fund. I was a uh, you know at on Wall Street, and so we we followed some some version of that path, right? Yeah. The question I I, I always ask myself is knowing what I know about my path. And I had the option to gift that path to my kids. Mm. Would you do it? Because mm. you know, you know, we obviously know what happens on the outside, yeah. where you live, what you yeah. know, what you can afford, and how people treat you. Yeah. But we don't see what happens on the inside. Yeah. The anxiety, the insecurity, the envy, the greed, the alcoholism, the addiction. Yeah. Have you thought about like if you could gift one of your kids your path? Yeah. Would you do it? So yes, with a big, huge caveat. Um, <laughs> and I think I, I think I've mentioned this to you before. Like I have a, I have a draft of a book in Notion that I might. I don't know if I'll ever publish. I'm very nervous about it. But it's called How to Build a Life, and it's it's. I feel like there's almost like a karmic thing that would happen when I do that. That like everything would implode around me. Mm-hmm. And then I have to write the sequel, which is how to rebuild a life. And I talk with my wife about this a lot. Like we are saving as if our kids are going to go to college. We are within reason and we have to still figure out what those tensions are and what we will and will not do in terms of guardrails and like letting them fail and all those kinds of things. If there are other skills that I think are important, I am also taking responsibility and accountability for trying to my kids with those things. Mm-hmm. And so during, during homeschool, we did a whole entrepreneurship curriculum and it was around a lemonade stand, but like we did market research and like we did, they did taste tests and we did packaging. We ordered special bottles from like a packaging company and designed their logo and made a website and they took credit cards and like, and I ended up like putting the curriculum in a, in a book that is, that sells very few copies, but it was important to me to teach them entrepreneurship. I'm doing a project with my son. It struck me that like my culture doesn't have any concept of like a rite of passage. And I think that's kind of neat. And so I went to a lot of effort to like write down, like, what do I think a good person needs to know how to do and, you know, from a character perspective, from a knowledge perspective, from a skills perspective, most of which is gender agnostic, but some of it is like, mm. what does it mean to be a good man in 2021? Mm-hmm. It seems like he's probably at this point, he has a girlfriend. It seems like he's probably just like a vanilla straight up the way, like yeah. white heterosexual male. So I am taking responsibility for that. Like, it seems like AI is going to be part of their lives. So like, rather than like put my head in the sand, it's like help them try to understand it and use it well. And like, I want to, again, in the interest of like maximizing their optionality, do that. To directly answer the question though, like I'm trying to give them the things, like when I reflect back on my life, I had a mentor actually talked about this. Like, do you love your life? And can you get to a place where you love your life? And where you feel like you accept, even with all of the bad stuff and the negative things. Because if you don't, if you don't love your life, it's going to be very hard for you to do the things that you want. It's going to be very hard for you to love other people because you Mm -hmm. don't, like when they talk about like loving yourself, like that means like, you know, Viktor Frankl's idea of like redeeming Mm -hmm. suffering, like finding the, the like, do I, do I wish that I went through that? Would I go through that again if I could Mm -hmm. choose it? Maybe not. But like. What was the good stuff that kind of came from that? 
And I think with a lot of the major, major decisions, I think, I, I think yeah, like I, I married the right person. Um, I, I've been very deliberate about relationship building and maintaining my relationships with people that I care about. I have a healthy relationship with my parents. And when those were fraying, there were some certain times, you know, where that was difficult. Like I've did a some did do, do similar exercises around my parents and like loving, I love my parents and like did they do everything right? No, nobody does. Um, but like, and it's all kind of under this like bucket of like wisdom, I guess what I would say yeah. for lack of a better word of like I feel really fortunate that I have had mentors and I've had people in my life who have given me wisdom, and that allows me so far at least to be able to like truly say yeah like I love I love my life like I'm in this state of flux yeah. right now and like the like the anxiety stuff was legit but yeah I mean I think I would yeah. I don't know I want I it's a hard question I my initial impulse for myself was is no mm. because I put I put so much pressure on myself yeah and I think a lot of that pressure comes, we talked about it on different podcasts, but just kind of this kind of leaky bucket, even on your podcast, this yeah. kind of leaky bucket that, yeah. you know, it's weird because I know that I am love, loved yeah. and lovable, worthy of love yeah, and inherently that my nature is good, yeah. you know? Yeah. But it's, you know, something in my body doesn't always feel that way. Mm. And I think that, it was very acute in like my twenties yeah. and thirties. And I think my success on wall street is a byproduct of that because I kept trying to overcome. It was like a giant story of overcompensation. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think now there is a little bit more, I don't want to say wisdom, but there's a little bit more self-awareness. That is not how I want to live. So. My initial impulse would be no, because I, I tell people all the time, like, if you saw the internal chatter in my head, like, no one would want that, right? Yeah. I wouldn't worry. It's not my worst enemy, but I wouldn't wish it on, I wouldn't wish it on many people. It's intense. Yeah. And yeah. you're a driven person. I assume that you probably have some flavor of that. Yeah. yeah. But now, and I like how you said loving your life. I, 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 what I was, you were saying that I was hearing more like loving yourself. Now I am much more at piece that you know i don't need to prove you know at first it was like proving things to others but yeah. really fundamentally it was proving things to yourself yeah and now there's that lightness that like i don't definitely don't need to prove well not definitely but i don't usually need to prove anything to others yeah i feel less like i need to prove something for myself so it's almost but yeah. i think what i'm saying is like i wouldn't want my life on my kids because I want, would want them to come enlightened out of the box, right? Yeah, Or to right. have to like have bypassed yeah. those 15, 20 years of teeth grinding and yeah. inner critic and perfectionism are and there, all of that. Are there people in your life who, when you, th and because, you know, sometimes it's, 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 it's hard. I think I have a tendency maybe to be too, too comparative um, too mm -hmm. often, but I, I don't entirely know how to avoid it, but like, so this question might not make any sense, but are there people, when you think about that and you, th you think like, if they saw my inner tape, like, you know, I wouldn't want to will that on them. Are there people in your life who, while obviously not being able to see their inner tape, you feel like you know them well enough to know that they do have some version of that enlightenment and didn't have to go through yeah. the fire their version of the fires that made, that you had to go through in order to get there. Like, did they? Are there people who just didn't have to didn't have to deal with any of that stuff? That's a great question. You added the the second part to it. At first, they're like, are there people where you could just tell? Like, yeah. and there's definitely, and you know, they tend to be they tend to be spiritual. They tend to not be overly materialistic. Yeah, they tend to have a connection to the earth and nature somehow. Yeah. Like, I, I mean, like, like beach bums, right? And, sure. you know, like you see it, but even with them, you see a little bit of agitation. Oftentimes there's, you know, I'm, I'm society is judging me for not having done X. So, right. but in terms of not having had to, I don't, I'm thinking of, of a handful, you know, one person was, it was a former alcoholic, was, is a recovering yeah. alcoholic. So yeah. 
that came at a price. Another was yeah. closeted yeah. for a long, I mean, no, not even closeted, married yeah. in a heterosexual relationship and realized she was lesbian. So, so no, I think I actually don't think I can think of anyone, which maybe kind of makes the question invalid or, or well, just, it's just, it's, I wonder, cause it's, it's like, I think that exercise, I, I encourage everyone listening to think about that. Like think about the person, just how they show up today. And you're like, oh, knowing everything I know about them today, you know, what, how they spend their time, what they work, how they think I, yeah. I would like wish that or trade that, but then like rewind the clock and like, well, were they always like that? Like, did they come out of did they come out of the womb like that? And that's, yeah. um, that's a, that's a powerful one. Um, yeah. I, I, and I wonder it because like I, that ex one of the, one of the, the more powerful exercises that my mentor had me do when we were going through that was he said, whatever you're doing, your narrative, your self narrative needs to be resilient enough to deal with cancer or you know, when you think about like the awful things that like I've had, I've lived a relatively charmed life. Like my, you know, like I've had things that have happened. Like my, my parents separated when I was little and in hindsight, you know, like I encountered adversity early in my career and, you know, like dealing with some of the anxiety stuff and things like that. But like relatively speaking, it's been a pretty charmed life. And whatever my framing story is and however I kind of approach things, like it needs to be able to handle the death of a kid. It yeah. needs to be able to handle my marriage falling apart. It needs to be able to handle a cancer diagnosis, like a terminal one. Like how do you, how can you be the kind of person that can be told that you have six months left to live mm -hmm. and still approach life as in a way that was like, my life was good? Yeah. You know, um, because wow. that stuff, some version of that's going to happen. If it doesn't happen yeah. to me, it's going to happen to somebody I care about. And, yeah. um, and I need a narrative that is big enough to accommodate uh. those kinds of things. And my wife and I've talked about this, like you talked about like the pressure, like as soon as she hears something, it's like a, it's a, an obligation. It's like a should. She's very, very hard on herself. I think a secret, a gift I was, like I grew up, I grew up in, in the Christian church. They've done many things that maybe aren't great, but a gift I was given was, and I don't think most people actually got this lesson and I don't know why I got this lesson, but I did. If I were to sum up like the evangelical, like Christian Thing. It was sort of like, not what they were saying, but it was sort of like what I heard was like, be better every day. Try to be better. You're never going to be, here's where you want to be. Here's where you are. Try to get the closer to that every day. You're never going to make it. It's okay. Like mm -hmm. those three, like somewhat paradoxical ideas gave me the desire to continue to try to improve myself while never like believing I'm never going to, I'm, I'm always going to be a mess. I'm always going to mm -hmm. be some version of a mess and that's okay. Like, so when I mess up or when something awful happens or like when my kids are, it's like, yeah, like, well, of course they are. Maybe that's gave me some lightness around what would I like will on my kids and is my life. Maybe it made it easier for me to like quote love my life. I don't know. I expect to show up a broken, flawed, but like yeah. ultimately, like you said, like good person who's just sort of doing their best, you know? Yeah. Beautiful. No, that, that, the, the whole like cancer, cancer test, uh, de death of a child, right? It's, yeah. I feel like ultimately, and, and we'll probably save this for another podcast, but ultimately that's like, do you fear your own death? Right. Which sure. is, I mean, those are all proxies for the ultimate, you know, yeah. but, uh, let's, uh, speaking of, let's pivot away from, uh, self immolation yeah. and, <laughs> and, and death. And, you know, that's a pretty, pretty popular topic in the Rad Reads canon. But uh, let's talk about AI, especially as it relates to kids. Here's a frame that I want to pick for you is that um, you and I, we've both exchanged, like we play with our AI with our kids. Yeah. And yeah. I have a few friends who are in the more traditional path. They're very educated, you know, yeah. elite, elite path that we've talked about. Yeah. And they are terrified for their kids about AI. Yeah. Does AI, let's put aside the existential risk of AI. Does the proliferation of AI scare you as it relates to your kids' professional and educational paths? I think we live in an environment right now where lots of things are happening. Technology is moving so fast that people can't keep up with it. Like, like it's very, very hard to keep up. Like, even people that are, like, do it for a living, like, the, the like rate me. of... <laughs> yeah, or it's Even just exponential. Yeah. Like it's so hard. And so like you feel like you're constantly swimming. 
you live in an environment where you are connected to the entire world, which means that you're kind of expected in some way or obligated or whatever it is to like process everything that's going on in the whole world and all of the pain in the whole world, which is really hard and we're not made to do. I think that, you know, you mentioned kind of like your, some of the, the people that are more chill in your life had kind of some sort of a spiritual thing undercurrent or whatever it is. I feel like as a function of like post-modernity, we like ripped out all of those floorboards and we're challenged, like for, for in many cases, like rightfully so, like challenging like traditional gender roles and challenging what a gender even is and challenging a whole bunch of other things. But we've, we've stripped away like meaning to a large degree and, are, and haven't really given people tools to like replace mm. it with anything. And so there, I feel like a lot of people feel unmoored just generally. Mm. And so that's the environment that we were in three years ago, yeah. five years ago. And then you drop, <laughs> yeah. you drop AI into it. And it's like, for the first time, I think people are having to confront the idea that whole professions, whole industries might disappear. And not in like 40 years, you know, like it's mm -hmm. not like a rust belt kind of situation. It's like it could happen in three years or whatever, because yeah. companies are pretty, for all the jokes that people make about how slow companies or enterprise organizations, move, like once they commercial resources and get consensus and all that kind of stuff, like it'll happen faster than you think. And so like tons and tons of industries are dealing with this. So if by, do I worry for my kids about AI? I feel like underneath that is, I don't know what the future is going to hold. And I don't know what jobs will be important and not important. And I don't know how people's relationship will, with money might evolve. Like, you know, people talk about like universal basic income and all those kinds of like big, heavy ideas. No, I don't know what that's going to look like. And, and so it does make it difficult, like tying back to the college conversation, it makes the optimization exercise around maximizing optionality incredibly difficult. And so yeah. I don't know, we're making bets as if college is going to still matter in five yeah. years or 10 years. I don't know if it will. Yeah. I'm making bets that like, even if I do have the resources to get them into the elite university and then the kids achieve the necessary like milestones to get into the elite yeah. university, that either the credential or the major that they choose or whatever it is will still be relevant in a world that gets disrupted by it. Like, I, I don't know. I, I really don't know. I try to temper that tension with, you know, like what I was saying earlier, like my wife's job didn't exist. When you think about how we spend our time and like this did not exist, like is it happening faster? Yes. Does that mean it's incumbent upon me to try to teach my kids skills to navigate change and to be comfortable with ambiguity? A lot of like entrepreneurial type of skills. Yeah. I think so. And so like I'm, you know, I'm pushing them to like be comfortable with like I feel like if you know how to sell, you know how to have relationships, you're comfortable with ambiguity, yeah. um, you're resilient. Like these are some like meta skills that I feel yeah. like I don't know what AI is going to replace and not replace. I prefer to think about the opportunity of it, of like, let's imagine that you do have the Neuralink thing and the future is like the homo deus or whatever it is, the, the sapiens guy. They said yeah. like, Harari. He, the, 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 the cyborg, like the future yeah. is the cyborg. And it's effectively a new entity in your augment or whatever. That might be the case, but like that sounds actually kind of neat in a lot of ways. Like there's going to be a lot of interesting stuff there. Like imagine being able to do like your self work on your shadow belief or on your leaky bucket or all that kind of stuff with like the world's smartest therapist that's like attached to your mm -hmm. part of your, and you can do it all kind of faster or throughout the day and just be constantly reminded of like, hey, Beach, I noticed you're not being kind to yourself. Like, yeah. You know, like, I just think there's a whole bunch of really, really cool things that could theoretically come for that. Kind of like how people were afraid of the internet. I, I feel like there's a sense in which the degree to which you stop being curious, and especially if you start, start being afraid, you're going to miss out on a lot of stuff. And so mm -hmm. I want to try to have my kids be like, like, yes, it might become self-aware and might decide to destroy humanity. I can't stop that from happening yeah. and neither can you. And so like, why worry about it? And then similarly, like, what's the opportunity here? Like teach them to be like, what's the opportunity? What cool stuff can I do with this? How can I choose to see this as a as a as a more exciting future than a less exciting future? You know, I love that. Yeah, I, I, you brought something interesting because I think I I asked the question through the lens of the parent. Yeah, and I think whenever there's uncertainty, like I see this all the time when people say, "Should I quit my job?" And you know, they have a lot of savings and they're educated and they're not burning bridges. 
Yeah. And all they can see is being destitute and without yeah. insurance, you know, in a hospital room without the right kind of insurance yeah. and getting kicked out of their homes and their neighbors, you know, their, their former neighbors, you know, disowning them as friends and so on. Mm-hmm. And I think that, I think that's a natural human instinct to always see the worst in things. Yeah. And I think that I, when people are changing jobs, I always encourage them to at least consider the upside. It's like, yeah. you never have to commute again. You can, you know, my friend just left 20 years at Wall Street. He said, I didn't realize that I just live with this low-grade anxiety that someone's going to be pissed or upset. Yeah. And yeah. It wasn't. And so I think this, I would apply the same frame to AI as it relates to my kids. It's like, what an, in, what an incredible opportunity. I've even seen in like little micro moments where, you know, we're doing a lot of like the summer workbooks and, you know, I still watch it, but my, my nine-year-old just asks chat GPT questions and she's learned how yeah. to refine the prompt. You know, it's like, what's a quadrilateral? I forgot what a quadrilateral was and the, you know, yeah. the difference between a, a rhombus and a, you know, so-and-so. Yeah. And so we ask them and they give like a, 20 paragraph answer. Yeah. And I tell my daughter, I say, explain it to me like I'm a nine-year-old kid. Yeah. And then they give a one paragraph answer. Yeah. And as I was watching, I'm like, this is no different than Google. I mean, obviously yeah. this is a very, very limited, it's a Google-like case, right. you know. She's right. not asking ChatGPT if 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 right. it thinks she's beautiful or something. But in in that, I was like, oh, it's like, why were we combing through you know, SEO posts trying to figure out what a what a quadrilateral was when we could just have it in one like everything. Everyone's life is is made much easier, and so I think of the upside. I think of you know all of the mundane tasks of summarizing things and resummarizing things and writer's block and so on. And instead of being like, oh, my child won't be able to do that because she'll be able to use ChatGPT, I would yeah. say like. How amazing that my child will never have to summarize meeting notes. Yeah. And instead she can do X, right? And so right. there is an excitement there. I think part of it is because I have an excitement around it. If yeah. I was scared of it, I would, I probably would project, project that know. fear. Yeah. 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 It's, it's interesting too. Like I, I do feel like it gives me an opportunity, you know, again, I have this tension with like, I, I want my kids to feel like you are loved exactly the way you are you're a mess and that's okay and like work your tail off and like go and try to make the best stuff you can make whatever that and whatever like vein that is and i feel like what i feel like what it's going to do is it's going to make is content going to like crappy content's going to go away yeah. yeah sure like yeah like low value like it it, it makes it's going to make us all collectively need to like level up our game yeah and um but maybe that's not necessarily a bad thing and yeah yeah, I don't know. Like, I choose to believe that it will be a net positive because there's no utility in thinking about it. I, I yep. can't, I can't identify the utility of deciding. It's, yep. it's, it's in general like it's pessimism in general. Like it's such yeah, a yeah. You need a pragmatist. Like I, I learned that when we did diligence for our fund. Like I tend to be such an optimist with our founders, and I needed you need to like someone to course correct me. But like the critic, just in general, it's like lots of people are worried about like interest rates and things like that. I just had coffee the other day with a guy that's like starting a real estate. He's, he's 30, I think. And he's starting a real estate fund, investing in single family homes in nice school districts. And he's done nine of them. And he's doing a, like he saw the opportunity and everybody else, like lots, a lot of the people saw like doom and gloom. And like, there's both stories were right. Yeah. Pick your story, like pick the good one. Mm-hmm. Oh, anyway. I love that. I love, we'll probably have to do a follow up episode uh, on how to how to teach your kids AI. So, so if if I if I were to 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 recap, I think there's a starting point that in general a college degree is a powerful. This is the college degree part yeah. is a powerful heuristic, signaling heuristic. Yeah, it's going to be category major specific, right? Um, yeah. Coding design yeah. might not be as important. Consulting, and so on. You've got to consider the opportunity cost of, you know, what that debt would be relative to the prestige marker, but also relative to the path dependency. The DIY approach could be interesting, but one needs to be very honest. Yeah. Yeah. And you you got to be very honest with like, 
it's kind of like that quote, if all we needed was more information, everyone would be a ripped billionaire. <laughs> right? Yeah. It's like, so, you know, it yeah. takes a certain type of person to become a ripped billionaire, right? 100%. Um, yeah. And then the kind of the the X factor of of fun, density, of life stage, of, of life experience, of intellectual equilibrium, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. That counts for everything? I think so. And the short, the short answer is, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. That's the theme for this podcast. Like the, we specifically pick questions where the answer, if anyone says, I know the answer to this, then, then we've missed the plot yeah. on the podcast. So, yeah. well, but actually before we sign off, I, I, I ask people, is there a, a creator or a thinker or an author that, that, that they like to highlight that that's either up and coming or that more people need to know of? It's a great question. I wouldn't call him up and coming, but like I've observed a trend, like a like a there's a there's a trend around like SMB and like mm. moving toward that as like a I think it's starting to become a lot more popular for a bunch of reasons. There's a there's a guy named Brent Bishore. He started Permanent Equity, uh, and, like um, runs Capital Camp and all that kind of stuff, and just the way that he's wired, the way that the organization is wired around like we make these investments and we hold them forever. It's like a very different sustainable view of capital and value creation and things like that. And I just think it's a really interesting oh, framework. So awesome. Um, and he's a great writer. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, funny story. I met Brent Bishore, uh, Brent once, and we were talking about mortality and death and, and uh, religion. I, I'm an atheist sl slash agnostic. And yeah. he said a quote to me I'll never forget. Yeah. He turns to me and he goes, takes a lot of faith to be an atheist. Huh. And I was like, that's like straight through. I'm sure, you know, deeply devout people are, are used to sure. confronting atheists. Uh, but I was like, whoa, that was like straight through the heart. Uh, shout out, Brent, if you're, if you're listening. I uh, love you, man. Um, yeah. Awesome, Sean. Well, uh, tell us before we go, where can, where can people go learn more Twitter, about you? Twitter's probably the best place. My handle is intentionally. I write a lot on LinkedIn these days too. You know, I'm doing the, I'm trying things on like a suit. So I have like a, I have a group for marketing executives that's in Slack and I've got this like coaching thing I'm doing and then I'm, you'll see what I'm doing next. I don't know. We'll find out. Awesome. Well, I can't wait. Yeah, well, man, Thank you we'll, so much, we'll Sean. Round three. <laughs> yes. Take All care, right, man. man. All right. Talk to you soon.